we've seen a lot of pictures of the people in the news, and we've got to know a lot of them by sight. Chamberlain with his umbrella, Winston Churchill with his hats, or Belisha, well, we know him quite all right. But there's one whose lovely photograph we've seen for years and years, and we ask ourselves this question every time his face appears. Who is this man who looks like Charlie Chaplin? What makes him think that he can win a war? It can't be the moustache. That only makes us laugh. And Charlie's done it better, and before. If it wasn't for the boots and cane and trousers, you couldn't tell the two of them apart. But the whole idea's absurd. Charlie's never said a word. And Adolf couldn't play a silent part. I'm sorry. I don't want to be an emperor. <laughs> I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. My name is Will Sloan. Uh, welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm here with... Luke Savage. Hey, guys. So, big week. We just uh, heard about the announcement of Tom Perez as head of the DNC. Beginning of the inevitable uh, DNC major- uh, congressional majority in, uh, in by 2018. You were very upset about it. Now, I mean, you know me. You're kind of the you're kind of the hardline leftist of the duo. Me, I'm just kind of like I'm you're, kind of, you're, I'm the, kind of you're the never Trump conservative. Yeah, <laughs> you're the you're the David Frum of the Michael and Us podcast. Yeah. I'm the guy at the barber shop who has who has a lot of strong opinions. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, how do you feel about this Tom Perez business? Oh, I, I mean, it's garbage. I don't know. It's just what I was saying to you before when we were uh, like off off mic. I guess my frustration is these people don't even seem to have the faintest sense of self interest. Like they just want to keep losing but ultimately it comes down to the democratic party is largely funded by silicon valley and by wall street and you know they will do anything except break even slightly from the policies favored by their donors in those uh places so you know it sucks what you know well aside from that it was a big week for for us (laughs) uh you you had a new article out yeah, uh, I had an essay in uh, Jacobin about, uh, well, I guess it's topical, uh, given the Perez thing, uh, about kind of technocracy and this idea that, you know, management principles can be applied to politics, which has been a really popular idea from for the last kind of 30 years or so. The and title is Twilight of the Technocrats, which it turns out was a somewhat premature... Well, there uh, was a question mark at the end <laughs> of it. And the thing is, I don't think it is necessarily premature because these people are keep losing it's really just a question of you know what replaces them like socialism or uh you know feral ethno-nationalist fascists um and it's increasingly looking like it'll be the latter nice yeah so yeah i wrote about how you know management and democratic politics can't really be synonymous and uh one of my long-standing gripes is when people talk about uh evidence-based policy making and uh non-ideology that kind of thing I think it's a really widespread fallacy that there's this realm of kind of expertise that's separate from ideological commitment and it's just not it's just not true you know Mm -hmm. the reason we have democracy is because well just like you and i you the conservative and me the the far leftist uh we can't agree on first principles so we have to debate them and evidence is and expertise are deployed once we decide what the the governing principles are you know the problem with you calling me a conservative is i know that half of your twitter followers don't get irony so well it's, it's actually really funny it's all because these earnest lefties <laughs> <laughs> no well young lefties get irony it's yeah. the it's i think it's often a i think it's kind of a generational thing it is really funny though because C- centrist liberals don't get irony, they don't get irony though. at Come all on. um it's really funny because there was this one episode where you made a joke about uh 
you know, I'm a Trump guy or something. <laughs> and uh, this friend of mine, like 100% earnestly thought that, that you were a Trump person. And I was like, <laughs> I like, know, I I was like, like I would do a podcast with an actual Trump supporter. <laughs> Are you serious? But uh, so you had an article as well, which to be honest, it's, it's maybe less germane to Michael and us subject matter, but I think it's maybe a, a more refreshing topic because it'll take our minds off these... Uh, these re- recent political events. So uh, yeah, what are the people caring about right now? It's Roger Ebert, the yeah. film critic for the Chicago Sun Times, who's deceased. been dead for four years. <laughs> yeah, it was in Hazlitt, and it's called Roger Ebert's Zero Star Movies, and it's mm. basically he reviewed ten thousand movies, he gave sixty movies zero stars, mm-hmm. and I think there's a small subcategory of those. 60 movies maybe 20 or so of them that are actually kind of interesting right pink flamingos and uh death race 2000 and some others so exploring his maybe ideological blind spots Mm -hmm. through those movies and you you kind of uh situated him within a wider tradition of american film criticism and i thought you know it was interesting what you what you did there because the the essay wasn't entirely about the reviews themselves it was kind of about you know, what the review said about Ebert's role within kind of the canon of American film criticism. That... Well, I think Ebert, who I've probably spent more time reading than most writers, yeah. uh, but I think he's the exact midpoint between an academic and a hack. Like, he's a brilliant uh, ambassador for the movies to the general public. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also, he's not somebody who you go to for the against the grain take. Mm-hmm. He is the bellwether for what an educated, white, liberal, middle-class American male is able to take at any given moment in history. Right, because a lot of his reactions to, like, a lot of the movies he didn't like, it was because of vulgarity. Yeah, there's or, a prudish or... quality. And in fact, a lot of his zero-star reviews, you can actually see him reviewing the audience as much as the movie. How so? Well, in when he reviews I Spit on Your Grave, mm-hmm. he talks a lot about how there were people in the audience who were kind of cheering on the rape scenes or in Mm -hmm. when he reviews death race 2000 he talks about how the theater was full of kids who were being exposed to this you know awful violence Mm -hmm. um there's a big kind of lamenting tone of in a lot of them about oh isn't it a shame that this is the kind of stuff that gets that gets bums in seats you know what was the uh what was the john waters film where he kind of missed the radical queer edge yeah it's a pink flamingo of course he he sort of he sort of regarded it as simply uh kind of a piece of ballyhoo, you know, right. like a carnival freak show. Right. Uh, anyway, not to totally dismiss Ebert, though. Uh, well, like I mean, he's, I, a, he's an interesting. I, I just got uh, the Great Movies Four, which just came out, I think, last month, yeah. which is kind of the fourth in the compendium of, uh, you know, and those books are really just good, kind of basic, you know, basic guides. Like if you want to enjoy a famous art film or something, and then you want, you know to think about it for 10 minutes, you know, after and have it kind of situated in, you know, the history of film for you. He's, he's he contextualizes it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, anybody who's heard his commentary track on Citizen Kane, Mm -hmm. you know, I know lots of people who have got come away with a lot more appreciation for Citizen Kane. I don't think I've ever heard, I've ever watched that. Well, well, I mean, a lot of people, you know, come to Citizen Kane and they say, okay, greatest movie of all time, show me. And they might not have the context for it. And his is a great, like film one-on-one intro to Citizen Kane. Right. Uh, we'll check out Will's essay in, uh, in Hazlitt. Uh, you can, uh, Look at it on the old internet there on yeah. what I assume hazlet.com or something. <laughs> .net, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> you can just Google it. Yeah. Um, so uh, as you you may have gotten uh, the hint from uh, the music or perhaps and my, even, my even the title of the episode. My, and my brilliant introduction. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we watched Charlie Chaplin's 1940 film, The Great Dictator, this week. <laughs> 
Does this remind you of anything? Why, of course you recognize him. It's Adenoid Pinkle, the Fooey of Tomania. I bet you recognize him, too. It's Charlie, the wonderful, the extraordinary Charlie Chaplin. By a strange trick of fate, the ruthless dictator and Charlie resemble each other like two peas in a pod. Except that while Adenoid Hinkle makes millions of people tremble, Charlie makes them die of laughter. And now for the other great characters in our story. Benzino Napoloni, the dictator of bacteria. Here is Field Marshal Bismarck heading Hinkle's right hand. Herr Garbage, his left hand. And finally, the little barber. And Hannah, the lovely, brave Hannah. It's uh, it's good. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what's your reaction to it? Just having watched it, I think for the second time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it was the, it was the second time I'd seen it. I feel like the other time I watched it was also with you yeah. several years ago. I was amazed by how little I remembered of it. I remembered a few kind of iconic scenes. I, I think that uh, I'd forgotten what a large kind of set piece it is and how expansive it is in scale. Mm-hmm. Like. Even just the battle sequence at the beginning is kind of impressively done, and there are airplanes, and um, later in the film there are tanks, and there are uh, these big crowd sequences, even though they're kind of, you know, they're artificially done, but they're still very, uh, very impressive. But I think that the most striking thing about this film is is the variance in tone throughout it, um, mm-hmm. because it is a slapstick comedy where Chaplin kind of inserts his signature, you know, vaudeville-derived humor Lots of sequences that are just kind of gags and things like that. But it's also a film about, you know, extreme, you know, a lot of it's set in, uh, you know, in a Jewish ghetto. Because the, the whole film is set in this kind of facsimile of Nazi Germany, which is called what? Ter, ter, uh, Tomania. Tomania. So Tomania. Right. And, uh, you know, which the regime is uh, is marked by kind of a, like, two X's or whatever, like, so they're just like swastikas with like little tails chopped off. And living um, under the dictatorship of Adenoid Hinkle, yeah. <laughs> played by Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. And so, you, you know, you have kind of these gags and then you have depictions of kind of the stormtroopers ransacking the, the ghetto in kind of uh, recreations of Kristallnacht and that kind of thing. But then at the end of the film, you know, the last few minutes, I mean, Chaplin plays two characters in this film. He plays the uh, Jewish uh, war veteran who's kind of just like the classic Chaplin character, sort of, but he's the barber, uh, sort of like the tramp character. The barber in the ghetto. The barber in the ghetto. And then he plays Hinkle. And he breaks both characters in the final scene. And the end of the film is remarkably earnest and uh, and is extremely powerful, I think. I have a longer relationship than you with this film. Yeah. I would say Chaplin is probably my favorite filmmaker yeah. for, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, Will, by the way, is like... Will is like a Chaplin scholar. Will, Will wrote an article that was just about Charlie Chaplin impersonators. I just wanted people to know like who they're <laughs> dealing with here. Yeah. I mean, The Great Dictator is not as perfect as certain of the silent films that Chaplin made, like City Lights and Modern Times. But there were a couple of scenes this time that almost moved me to tears yeah um i think the film as a historical document has a touching naivete to it Mm -hmm. uh 
Chaplin sets himself up in this film. It's not the film of a man with a small ego. He's a man who sa- who says, I am the biggest movie star in the world. I am the biggest cultural icon of the 20th century, and I'm going to use... All- not, not entirely incorrect. But- yeah, and, and I'm mm. going to use all that artillery. I'm going to use all mm. my gravita to take down, you know, the biggest tyrant of the 20th yeah. century. So the film has a touching naivete about the power of art, you know, what the role of art can and should be in a situation like this. It also has a naivete just about Hitler, Mm -hmm. about the scope of Hitler's plans, about the ghettos, Mm -hmm. about the concentration camps. Words like ghetto and concentration camp are thrown around in this movie somewhat casually almost. Mm -hmm. And when we see the ghetto early in the film, it's almost like this... I mean, it's hardly idyllic. It's just, it's just a closed-off part of the city, basically. Yeah, and watching it, too, uh, watching it for the first time in the Trump regime, and mm. for the first time since the alt-right has become a major force, I was more conscious than ever of its continuity with Chaplin's earlier films, and I was more, I guess, moved than ever by the way that this idyllic Chaplin universe in this film comes into conflict with the real world. Mm-hmm. There's a scene early in the film when the Jewish barber has just returned to the ghetto and he's opening his barber shop and he's unaware of what's happened in Tumania. So he comes out and he starts wiping Jew, uh, which some one of the stormtroopers has written, off the window. And then the stormtroopers start harassing them and they have a bit of a back and forth. A and a bit of a tussle and there's a bit of slapstick and a bit of a chase. And it's a scene that's not unlike any of Chaplin's encounters with the police in his earlier films. It's just, it's like your standard Chaplin slapstick scene, but it's the Nazis. And it's, you see him, you see him running past a street of stores with Jew written on them. And something about the innocence of Chaplin's universe coming into conversation with, you know, this well, the dystopian reality. Segregation and, uh, yeah. Like that scene in particular is the one that almost moved me to, to tears. Yeah. Which is funny because the tone of the scene is very kind of, for much of it, is very light. I mean, it's the the female character, is it Hannah? She's mm-hmm. she's smacking the stormtroopers with a frying pan from a window and, and you know, with a, with a great clang. I but mean, that's kind of the tone of the, th- of the scene. The scene climaxes with uh, the Jewish barber almost being strung up and yeah. hung over a street lamp. And rescued by his former uh, war comrade, who's a... Now a high-ranking member of the Hinkle administration. Yeah, yeah. And kind of kind of the never-Trump conservative <laughs> of the of the Hinkle administration. He's not, you know, he he's not so into the ethnic nationalism of Hinkle. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe uh, now would be a good time to mention just sort of what role Chaplin had in Hollywood and in the culture when this film was made. Mm. This was his first talkie, you know, a right. full 12 or 13 years after the introduction of sound film. No- talkie is such an, like, an acronym. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, one that people, like, still some for some reason say, a motion picture. Yeah. As if, like, you go to see something and it's... Because just the idea that sound, like, speech is a novelty... <laughs> The idea that, like, it's even more ridiculous that uh, yeah. just moving pictures. <laughs> anyway, sorry. But only yeah. Chaplin could have held out this long. Mm-hmm. Not only because of his, you know, box office appeal, but the fact that he was his own producer, he had his own studio, he financed his own films. He basically had a studio there where he would have a full staff who would just work there and they would work around his whims. He could go in whenever he wanted and make a movie. And he made movies very seldomly at this time. This was his first film in four years. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a law unto himself, basically. Mm-hmm. Zane, the alien, and now, shooting. 
Schuten. Und er streift das Sauerkraut mit der Schuten. Und er überwuscht mit der Schuten. Ey, der Flutzensack, Alter, mit der Schuten. Ey, der Flutzensack, Klärten. Und er strengelächelt mit der Hultensack, Klärten. Und er Blätzensack, Alten, Besick, Besack. His Excellency has just referred to the Jewish people. What does the tramp mean to you? Uh, he's somebody who, you know, one of the most iconic characters in film. He's somebody who's been embraced by so many seemingly disparate groups. Mm -hmm. uh, but do you approach him from sort of an ideological point of view? Because, you know, the Soviets got behind him. Mm -hmm. The socialists got behind him. I, you know, I've, ne I've never really thought about him in those terms. <laughs> I've seen maybe five or six Chaplin films, mm -hmm. I guess most of them featuring the Tramp. But, you know, it's fun. So, I mean, you're obviously kind of hinting at something. So <laughs> what, what does the Tramp mean uh, to you? I don't know. He's just like this kind of all-purpose symbol for, you know, the little man. And like, exclusion. And yeah, he's kind yeah. of like this perfect malleable symbol. I mean, mm -hmm. there's that scene in modern times, you know, when he picks up the flag that's fallen off the back oh, of the I truck and he starts, like, chasing the truck with the flag and then People all of a sudden him. a communist rally starts behind him. But, like, you can read it as he's a communist, or you can read it as, I know, he's just this, like, little little man in the whims of and history. Pe and people are sheep and they, yeah. But it was no small thing for Chaplin to make a movie like this. I mean, he put two million dollars of his own money to make a movie against Hitler. It was announced before the war in Europe. Mm -hmm. It was released before the United States joined mm -hmm. the war. When he started it, there was no guarantee that it would get any distribution in Europe. So, you know, it's it's a ballsy move. Yeah, and probably something that, like, there's no figure today that would have kind of the institutional capacity to produce something as kind of ballsy as this, right? You know, watching it at this moment in history, I think it raises a lot of questions about what the role of art, the role of comedy is in... Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it makes me think a little bit of uh, the the chaplain of today, Alec Baldwin, uh, who I know all of Fuck our... Fuck off. I know who all of our listeners are uh, enjoying every Saturday night. I, I just watched, uh, I, I think perhaps at your suggestion, I just watched kind of 30 seconds of... The Alec Baldwin, like, Trump uh, you need, impressions. Like, you need to watch it if you want to be part of society right now, just to know <laughs> I mean, what it's like. It really is bad, isn't it? It's because it's not even good as an impression, let alone as kind of satire. It reminded me of um, when they did that Rob Ford sketch and people just shared it because they were like, oh my God, Canada's on SNL. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't sound like Rob Ford. Rob Ford doesn't talk like that. It didn't particularly look like Rob Ford. It didn't have any comment on Rob Ford. And that's kind of how I feel about um, the way SNL treats Trump, not how I feel about Chaplin's well, treatment of Hitler. But. Every time I watch uh, Alec Baldwin as Trump, I kind of think, like, doesn't this show have, like, actual professional comedians who can do this better? <laughs> like, every week they've got a new celebrity doing a new Im impression of some Trump mm -hmm. character. But I don't know, is there, like, there's just been this general sense because Trump hates SNL so much because he's always up every week tweeting about how unfair it is. Right. It's got this new kind of radical sheen to it. There's this feeling that if you watch SNL, it's a political act. Well, there was a CNN op-ed uh, that was published last week, and I swear to God, the title was, uh, Will SNL Bring Down the Trump Administration? Right, which I don't think it will. Uh, <laughs> if Well, I mean, I'll put it this way. If SNL could bring down, if like late night comedy could bring down the Trump administration, we wouldn't like the phrase Trump administration would not be something we'd, we'd be using every day. Is it fair or unfair to compare what Chaplin's doing here though to what SNL is doing? The comparison only works in the most superficial way. I mean, I think 
part of the problem also is just that the nature of kind of authoritarian politics has changed so much. I mean, uh, you know, Hitler was a, was an ideologue. You know, he was somebody who, as the film recreates so well, he was somebody who successfully erected this whole new kind of liturgy of, of state power, which was, you know, very unifying and, and galvanizing for a lot of people. That's not really what Donald Trump is. I mean, it's true that there's... Donald Trump is parasitic on a radicalized version of the traditional right in the United States. But I mean, he himself is, I think the extent to which he's any kind of ideologue is very, I mean, he, he's somebody who's a product of kind of TV and mass culture, which is why in, um, here in the 21st century, we're, we're engineering a whole new kind of dystopia, which, uh -huh. which like the Nazis could never have fathomed. But, um, <laughs> I think the trouble with the comparisons is that, uh, because Hitler, invested so much in this kind of romantic notion of, you know, the, the Third Reich and everything. What Chaplin does where he, you know, parodies the Hitler character, where he does those ridiculous kind of spiels in like mock German, where if you listen, he kind of just keeps saying things like sauerkraut and schnitzel. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, he coughs and wheezes. You know, that I think has a real power to it or would have in 1940, which I really don't think there's nobody who mocks Trump that it that it has anything like the same effect because Trump is already a parody. Like here's a guy who was created over several decades by TV playing a kind of ironic novelty businessman. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't think just kind of doing Trump really has the same effect because Trump is already like that. Watching The Great Dictator, it occurred to me that I think Chaplin, part of him really loves all of this like Nazi imagery because, in a way. Because of his ego? Well, I don't know. Like there's something about the splendor of it that I think impresses him in a way. I mean, not to, not to speak poorly of Chaplin, but I think, I don't know, I heard a quote somewhere that said, somebody's opinion on fascism is more interesting if they've been tempted by it. Right. I mean, he loves the palace. He loves the crowds. He loves, you know, Chaplin's a guy who ran his own studio and he had people working there, whether or not he was there or not. Like there's something about the splendor of Hitler's power that I think he like identifies with. Strange. These strike leaders, they're all brunettes, but a blonde amongst them. Brunettes are travel makers. They're worse than the Jews. They'd wipe them out. Too small. Not so fast. We get rid of the Jews first, then concentrate on the brunettes. She'll never have peace until we have a pure Aryan race. How wonderful. Tomania, a nation of blue-eyed blondes. We're not a blonde Europe, a blonde Asia, a blonde America. A blonde world. And a brunette dictator. Dictator of the world. Why not? Art Caesar, Art Nullus. The world is effete, worn out, afraid. No nation would dare to oppose you. Dictator of the world. It's your destiny. We'll kill off the Jews. Wipe out the brunettes. Then will come forth our dream, a pure Aryan race. Beautiful blonde Aryans. They will love you, they will adore you. They will worship you as a god. <gasps> no, no, you mustn't say it. You make me afraid of myself. What can you tell us about Chaplin's specific politics? I mean, they're a bit of a dog's breakfast, I think. There are times... Sorry, that's a little... Like, dog's breakfast is a little bit like the bee's knees to me. What the hell does that mean? You're using, like, vaudeville express <laughs> expressions to talk Sorry, about... Sorry, the movie brought it out yeah. of me. You know, it's like... It, it, it's a bit muddled. I mean... In some of his films, in some of his speeches, he sounds like a socialist. Right. But I mean, he was also, in his own life, a rabid capitalist. Right. You know, during this time, many people suspected him of being pinko, basically because he was an avid supporter of the Russian front during the Second World War. Right. And what, you mean the front where, you know, not wanting the Nazis to take Moscow? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Russians were 
America's allies. Yeah, but I don't really see why that's controversial. Well, you know, Chaplin would go out and give speeches in support of it. And right. there was one in particular at Madison Square Garden shortly right. after this movie came out where he came out and said, comrades. Right, right. Uh, or even just like listen to the final speech of this film where... He talks about we want to eradicate uh, mm. national borders and poverty. And I mean that that it's sounds kind of like a socialist internationalism. It sounds like yeah. yeah. Um, um, well, okay, so that's where I was going next. I wanted to talk about the speech, which uh, you'll all hear at the end of the episode. But because the speech, like I said before, is striking in that he breaks both characters. I mean, he's not really the tramp anymore in that in that or the barber in that mm. in that sequence. It, it's the way it's shot. It's you're looking directly at Charlie yeah. Chaplin's face, and it feels like. Charlie Chaplin is using this platform he's he's constructed for himself to really address the whole human race. And it's hard to tell how literally to take it within the diegesis of the film because right, absolutely because you know the camera closes in on him we never see any of the people on stage again. No, um, we don't see their reactions. We cut back to Hannah and the crowd. The crowd reacts. The, cr- the crowd reacts, but I think there's a sense that the crowd is us, yeah. you know. It cuts back to Hannah in Austerlitz, where the family has fled. Mm -hmm. So she's heard the speech, but there's no denouement where we find out the Barbara and Hannah have been reunited. No. It ends in this kind of optimistic but open-ended way. Yeah. He says, like, Hannah, the clouds are lifting, and then they all look up at the clouds, and then it Then Then it it fades out. Yeah, I mean, the film really does close on this kind of final grand gesture, and it's Mm -hmm. unclear what the actual conclusion of the story uh, really is, isn't it? I mean, I guess it's in our hands as (laughs) viewer i mean like this speech uh has been controversial ever since the movie came out there are still plenty of people who think the speech doesn't work and i mean in some way it doesn't work i mean it's weird to have a movie end with an editorial like this but i also think it's the only way the movie could have ended yeah how could a story like this this kind of rip from the headlines you know passionate film that was made during the second world war how could it end with you know anything other than a hopeful Mm. hopeful but indefinite conclusion i've thought a lot about the crowd's reaction to his speech i mean it may be as you say that the crowd actually instead of being what's effectively a nazi rally is really us but i often wondered if chaplin wasn't making a kind of meta comment there where if the dictator says anything yeah the crowd people will just... just people will just go along with it so it doesn't matter if he's kind of breaking the dictator character um, or you know to look at it more optimistically maybe he's saying that if you give the people the truth then they then they will be swayed yeah this speech is kind of the quintessential entry in a genre of comic discourse i guess where it's like when the laughs aren't enough anymore right i mean we see a paler version of it in the rally to restore sanity oh god when at the end he comes out and john stewart literally says and now a moment of yeah. sincerity i'm really glad you guys are here uh i mean i don't know why it works here necessarily because normally when comedian when the laughs aren't enough and the comedian says, okay, you know, laughs aren't enough. We got to be serious right now. I've thrown every possible egg at Hitler. And now I got to be direct. Normally I would say surely humor is enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why it works here though. Maybe it's because he's Chaplin and, uh, you know, Hitler is Hitler. And because they're both two of the biggest icons of the 20th century, they both have sufficient gravitas to make a scene like this work. To me, there's no question the final scene works. It's incredibly powerful. And it is it is an incredible speech just kind of as a document. You know, it's amazing that somebody was able to put that in a film in 1940 or at all. Mm. The film was Chaplin's last big success. Uh, was, and it was, it was a big success. Was Monsieur Verdoux, was that before or after? It was after, so that came out seven years after this. Right. In the post-war years, he was 
widely assumed to be a communist right. in the kind of right-wing press. There was also a paternity suit by a former lover mm. that kind of dragged him through the mud. He was quite prolific when it came to children as yes. well as films, right? Um, although this apparently was not his child. Right. Um, but Monsieur Verdu was also kind of the worst possible follow-up in terms of his uh, public image because right. well he's a serial killer it's an anti-capitalist yeah serial killer film so basically good. you know when i compare the great dictator to monsieur verdu the great dictator actually feels like a pre-holocaust a pre-atomic bomb movie but yeah. monsieur verdu has this sour cynical quality of being post yeah. hiroshima yeah I don't know. There's something, there's something almost apocalyptic about Monsieur Verdu. I got it recently. I haven't rewatched it. I'm, uh, I'm looking for. I might, might uh, revisit it soon. Uh, what, what happened to Chaplin after that? Well, eventually he had to leave the country because he never became an American citizen. He was a British citizen, and then when he left the country uh, in 1952 to go on a vacation, his reentry visa was revoked, mm. and this was after several years of media persecution possibly could have re-entered if he'd taken uh, I don't know a loyalty test whatever would have been required but I think at that point he decided not to right. so he lived the last 20 years of his life in Switzerland mm-hmm. and eventually did return to the US for a week mm-hmm. uh, to accept an Oscar what year was that 1972 and when did he die 77 Wow okay um, so I don't know it's it's just kind of an interesting movie in that sense it's it was one of Chaplin's biggest hits it was probably the height of his influence i mean roosevelt himself apparently encouraged chaplin to make this film wow that's how influential he was but it was also the beginning of the end imagine adult starring in the gold rush he hasn't got a half of charlie's charms but he gives a lot of troubles to his film director gobbles when he plays the leading part in shoulder arms he's amusing when he tries to play the villain it's bound to get a laugh in every climb I believe it's all a fake-up, and in spite of all the makeup, we are convinced it's Charlie Chaplin all the time. And supposing Charlie Chaplin got the fever, a war would be a comedy pro tem. Imagine Adolf getting skittish, signing packs with Goldman British, and dropping custard pies on MGM. Charlie Chaplin would be bigger, louder, funnier. With him in charge, the battles would be fun. And the chief of his Gestapo wouldn't be Karl Marx, but Harpo. And he'd soon have Shirley Temple on the run. Mm? If Adolf was in pictures, he'd try sob stuff. East Lynn would be his story as a start. Little Eva, played by Goering, would be a trifle boring. I'd sooner see Charles Lawton in the part. But don't let us be too hard on poor old Adolf. He's a godsend to the comics. He's sublime. Cartoonists love his makeup, but one morning we shall wake up and find it's Charlie Chaplin all the time. So what are we going to do next week, Will? Any thoughts? I think we finally found an alt-right film. Okay. The movie is How to Be a Man. Right. Starring and uh, written by uh, Mr. Gavin McInnes. Oh, my God. Do you have any particular relationship with Gavin McInnes? So, I mean, part of my job is kind of monitoring the right. I mean, Gavin McInnes is a big force on it, although the so-called alt-right is a lot... It's characterized by many things, but above all, kind of its youthfulness, which makes Gavin McInnes a funny presence (laughs) in it, because he looks like if you're kind of slightly embarrassing dad who maybe was in a garage band that played, like, Kiss cover, 
rappers if he dressed up as like an annex hipster <laughs> um and then had like cartoonishly reactionary politics well he was a hipster i mean he was one of the founders, founders of vice, of vice yeah. and I think for a long time, he was almost like the ironic conservative. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that was kind of Vice's bit before it became what it is today. That's my understanding, is that it, it kind of had an like an ironic... Like, douche quality. Yeah, douche quality that would... That, you know, that used to get it in trouble because it would publish kind of stuff that was misogynistic or well, racist. Well, Gavin McInnes or... was always writing these articles like The Vice Guide to Anal Sex right. or, or stuff like that. Uh, right. and, although apparently now he's a no-fapper. <laughs> right. Wow, thanks for that information. Um, I'm sure we'll find out more. How to Be a Man came out in the early 2010s. Right. Um, and I think it's kind of just on the... Cu- I haven't seen it. I think it's just on the cusp of him turning into what he is now. Did that have any kind of mass... Re- I've never heard of it, I have to say. It had some sort of release. Uh, uh-huh. Not much of one. Well, people have been really nice in providing uh, feedback online, so thank you. We're starting to get, you know, weekly Michael and us Twitter traffic, which is really nice to uh, see. So thanks to everybody who's listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Now watch this drive. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed. The bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power, the power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world. 
that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite!